The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I'd invite you, if you would, to turn your Bible to Psalm 119. I realize at the outset that very few things strike sheer terror into the heart of Christians who attend a church where the Bible is taught in expository fashion than to hear the words turn in your Bible to Psalm 119. Your pastor loves you. (laughs) Psalm 119 is the longest psalm in the Bible. It is the longest chapter in the Bible, 176 verses. Um, I trust you understand we will not address all 176 this morning. But we've been studying the Psalms for some time now, uh, beginning at the beginning of the summer, and we've sort of uh, picked our way through the Psalms. And uh, I thought as we entered into these weeks of leading up to the Reformation that we would look to the Psalms to see if we see seeds of truth that point to the issues that uh, were, were significant in the Reformation of the Church. And If there was any issue that was significant to the Reformation of the Church, it was the issue of the authority and the sufficiency of the Word of God. And I I have to tell you, there's no place that I can find better in all of the texts of Holy Scripture to establish those matters than in Psalm 119. In fact, one of the things that was instrumental in Martin Luther's life was he taught through the Psalms just before he taught through the book of Romans. And it was his teaching in the Psalms that was instrumental in helping shape his understanding of what the Word of God really is in and against what it was being presented as in his day. Long before Luther ever came around in the 1500s, there were others who had gone before him who had noticed and identified the problem with the Christian church, which was the only Christian church, the Roman Catholic Church of their day. And that was that tradition had been elevated to the, uh, to the same level as Scripture, to the same level of authority, to the same level of teaching, to the same level of sufficiency as that of the Scriptures, and was being presented as such to the people. And people had absolutely no recourse to be able to find out the truth. There were those, occasionally, who understood Latin, who were educated, who could read the words of Scripture for themselves, And occasionally, there would be those who would take to a serious study of that. And what they would often find is, wait a minute, what I find in the actual text does not line up with what I'm being taught by the tradition. What the Pope is saying doesn't match with what the Word of God is saying. What the bishops are presenting is not exactly what the Word of God actually says. There's other truth being mixed in here. Truth It's not truth at all. One such person was a man by the name of John Wycliffe. You have an insert in your bulletin this morning that gives you a bit of background and information on him. He's sometimes called the morning star of the Reformation because he's, he, he came onto the scene before, obviously before the 1500s, before 1517. You see his, his uh, lifespan, 1328 through 1384 on your little handout there, which you can read later. Uh, But Wycliffe came along, and Wycliffe uh, was one who saw this. He saw what the Bible actually said and what was being taught by the church were not the same thing. And he knew 
because of the, the impact that the words of God had had on his life, that if he could just somehow take the Word of God, translate it, and get it into the hands of people in a language that they could read, that it would transform their lives. That it would equip them with what they needed to see through the fog that was being presented to them uh, by the apostate church of their day. And that they could be delivered by the truth. Wycliffe set out to do such a thing. Of course, you understand that he faced, just as the Reformers did a couple hundred years later, tremendous, tremendous opposition from the religious authorities of his day and from the church. But to Wycliffe, there was nothing that was more important than getting the Bible and its message into the language and the hearts of the people, into the English language. As he put it, he said this, God's words will give men new life more than any other words that are for pleasure. O marvelous power of the divine seed, which overpowers strong men in arms, softens hard hearts, and renews and changes into divine men, those men who had been brutalized by sins and departed infinitely far from God. Obviously, such miraculous power could never be worked by the work of a priest. If the spirit of life and the eternal word did not, above all things else, work with it. He knew it was the Word of God that had the power to transform men's lives. Wycliffe was condemned by the church of his day. He eventually died of a stroke on New Year's Eve in 1384. But his influence went on and had tremendous impact. And it impacted the later reformers significantly. The church was so... Infuriated by what Wycliffe was doing, trying to get the actual Word of God into the hands of people in a language that they could read, that 30 years after he died of his stroke, the Council of Constance condemned him. Orders were given to destroy every single one of his writings. His literally, his bones were exhumed from the body, I mean, from the grave, and burned. And his ashes scattered into the river. Such was the hostility of the Roman Catholic Church of his day toward any who would seek to put the actual Word of God into the hands of ordinary people in a language that they could read. And it was men like Wycliffe who set the stage for the Protestant Reformation for a day when Martin Luther would come onto the scene and see the very same things in Germany. See a German people who had no Bible in their language to be able to read. And see also a corrupt church that was teaching things contrary to the, to the testimony of Scripture. And so, October 31, 1517, Martin Luther nails his 95 theses to the door in Wittenberg of the local church. And the Reformation is launched. And the central issue, or at least one of the central issues, and I could argue that it's probably the most central issue because all the others flow after it really and depend upon it in some sense, was this issue about the authority and, the, and the, the sufficiency of the Scriptures. I mean, it revolved around two issues. What is the source of religious truth for the people of God? And then the second question, how can a man be made right with God? Those were the two central issues. The source of religious authority for the people of God, and how can a person be made right with God? We'll deal with the second question in the weeks to come. But the first question is a matter we'll deal with today, and it's a matter for which Psalm 119, the psalmist, begins to reflect. The question is, does the Bible provide us with everything we need for life and godliness? Does the Scriptures, 
or do the Scriptures provide us with everything we need to know God, to be saved, and to live a life that honors Him? Or do we need outside other sources mixed in with what we find in the words of the Scripture? Do we need a pope? Do we need a church tradition? Do we need a religious hierarchy of men to add to and to add interpretations to and to supplement what the actual words of the Bible say? The Roman Catholic Church position was clear. It said this. It says, It's clear, therefore, that sacred tradition, sacred scripture, and the teaching authority of the church, in accord with God's most wise design, are so linked and joined together that one cannot stand without the others. Did you hear that? Three things. The scriptures, the teaching authority of the church, and sacred tradition, the Roman Catholic Church says. All stand on level ground, and one cannot stand without the other. That was the official position in Martin Luther's day. It was the official church position in John Wycliffe's day. It is the official church position in our day. Up and against that, people like Luther and the Reformers held out a different idea. It's the idea that's come known as sola scriptura. And it simply is a, it's a, a word that you don't need to know, but the definition you do. It simply is an idea that says this. All things necessary for salvation and concerning faith and life are taught in the Bible clearly enough for the ordinary believer to find it there and understand it. That nothing else stands on level ground with the Word of God. Not church tradition, not the teachings of the church, not the edicts of a pope or of any other man. The Word of God stands above all uh, sources of information alone and unchallenged, and it needs nothing else. And, it, there, and that when we look to the Word of God in the Holy Bible, what we find there is everything we need to be saved and everything we need to live a life that honors the Lord. And it can be read and understood by anybody who's willing to read it with an open heart. That is the view of the Reformers. Scripture alone is the ultimate authority on matters of faith and practice. It is completely sufficient for all matters of faith and practice. And men need absolutely no other authority apart from the Scriptures to be saved and to obey Christ. Tyndale said this in response to a a, a priest who had said to him, you just saw this quote a moment ago, the priest said to him, we had better be without God's laws than the Pope. To which Tyndale responded, I defy the Pope and all his laws. And if God spares my life ere many years, I will cause the boy that drives the plow to know more of the Scriptures than you do. That was the thrust of that man's life. So, that's what it means to say Scripture alone or sola Scriptura. And this was a a foundational issue of the Reformation. Up and against that, this idea denies three things that are important for us to think through today. And the first is this. It denies, sola scriptura, or the idea that scripture alone is sufficient and authoritative, it denies that any council, any creed, any individual can bind a Christian's conscience with anything that's not found in the scriptures. You get that? It's to say that nobody can bind a believer to anything that isn't found here. Rules, mandates, laws, commandments imposed by men on other people, not found in the Word of God, are null and void and invalid. It denies something else, though. It denies the idea that the Holy Spirit speaks independently of or contrary to this Word. 
Solar Scripture says that God has given us a full and complete revelation in His Word. It is completely authoritative. It is utterly sufficient in itself. And the Holy Spirit has inspired it, has breathed life into it, and still uses it to explode in the lives of people to change them radically. But the Holy Spirit will never and does never speak independently of or contrary to this Word. So when people come around today and they start telling you, well, the Holy Spirit has told me this, and God has told me that, and I had a dream, and this is what the Lord said, and it doesn't line up with the words of this book, you understand that they're confused and they're misled. It also denies that any sort of personal spiritual experience can ever be an authoritative means of godly's, godly divine revelation. In other words, there's no personal spiritual means by which God gives new revelation outside of this. And there's no shortage of those running around in our day who claim such things. Apostle this and prophet that, who tell us that God has revealed new things to them. All of such ideas were denied by this idea of sola scripture. It was that scripture alone is all that a man needs. It's all that a woman needs to be saved, to be made right with God, and to live a life that honors the Lord. And that is really the issue that flows out of the verses of Psalm 119. The psalmist writes this lengthy psalm about the value and the nature and the function of the Word of God and how men and women should respond to it. Now, just a note about this particular psalm. By the way, we would typically read our entire text, but you understand this morning it would take us about 22 minutes to read Psalm 119. So we're going to cherry-pick our way through it this morning, but I want to challenge you to go home and read it in its fullness. It will be a joy to your heart to do so. Just so you'll understand how the psalm is, is set up and why it's 176 verses, the psalm is set up in a very unique way. It is set up in 22 groups of eight verses. Each group of verses begins with the letter, uh, letter of the Hebrew alphabet, beginning with the first, Aleph. So the first, if you have your Bible and you open it to Psalm 119, you'll see above verse 1, probably in your Bible, you see the word Aleph, right? Do you see that? Is it in your Bible? That's just the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And each, in the Hebrew, each line of verses 1 through 8 begins with the letter Aleph. And when you get to verse 9, you see above verse 9, yours probably says Bet. That's the second letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And every line in verses 9 through 14 begins with the letter, the Hebrew letter, Bet, and so on, all the way through to the very end. It's a beautiful piece of poetry that is really incredibly written by the hand of one who is brilliant. And so there's 22 verses, uh, 22 uh, letters, so there's 22 groups of eight verses, making 176 verses altogether. So that's how it's set up, and that's why it's set up that way, and that's why there's that many verses in it. And this is a, 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 a psalm that is all about the Word of God. The psalmist uses lots of different synonyms when he's talking about the Word of God, and you'll see this as you read your way through it. I'll just read the first eight verses and give you some sense for the flavor of this. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with their whole heart who also do no wrong, but walk in His ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I lean, or excuse me, when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. 
What you see there is a sample of what you see all throughout this psalm. Lots of different synonyms used for the Word of God. The psalmist uses a variety of words. He uses the word law. He uses the word testimonies. He uses the word ways. He uses the word precepts. He uses the word statutes. He uses the word commandments and righteous rules. They have slightly different slices of meaning, but in this context of this psalm, they're all synonyms that stand for the Word of God. What God has said. What God has said and what God has declared and what has been written. It would be a little boring if he used the same word over and over for 176 verses, right? So he spreads it out on these variety of different things. Your laws, your testimony, your ways, your statutes, your commandments, your righteous rules. And as you work your way through this, uh, you'll see a couple, you'll see a lot of things. But I want to show you just by way of a, a, of a 10,000 feet flyover this morning what the content of this is, so that you can go back and look at it on your own in more depth. I want to split this up this morning and looking at it this way. What does the psalmist tell us about the nature of the Word of God? And what does it tell us about the function of the Word of God? What is the Word of God? What is it at its essence? What is it? At, what is it? Its nature. And then what does it do? How does it function? And again, the temptation for me is to dive into every piece of this in depth, and you're going to have to stop me. Just wave your hands or say, we, we have lunch plans, not dinner plans, and... Um, and we'll go. Some of these things I will nosedive down into and others I'll just fly over. You mark them and write them down and look at them later. What is the nature of Scripture? One of the things that we see immediately in this psalm is that we're told that the nature of the Bible is the very Word of God. What is at issue here is the very words of God. You see all over the place, um, verse 1, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Whose law? Is he talking about? It's for the Lord's law. Verse 5, Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. How can a young man, verse 9, keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Your word, your laws, your statutes, your commandments, all throughout this. What he's talking about is not just anyone's words. He's talking about God's words. This is not the words of men that David is celebrating. It is the words of God. The God of the universe has spoken. He has said something. The one who created every human being, the one who created everything that is known to be created, has not just created it and set it on its course or on its path while he goes off to play golf. The Lord who has created it all has spoken to men. He has said something. He has communicated via words. And the psalmist tells us that what we find here are the very words of God. They're not the words of men, they're the words of God. They're not the words that somebody is writing that they heard somebody else said. He's saying that these things that I read and these things that I meditate on are the very words of God. For every single word we read, the psalmist says, it's God who speaks. Do you understand what a significant issue that is? When you and I are at home in the morning or in the evening or whenever that moment is in your life where you stop and read God's Word, you're not just reading a book. You're not just reading the thoughts of some man's mind or some woman's pen. When you open this thing up and you begin to read and you let your eyes cross those words and they enter your mind, you are reading what God has said. What, God has, what the God of the universe has communicated to you. 
The New Testament echoes this idea. Second Peter chapter 1, Peter writes, verse 20 and following, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of, men, of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter says, look, there were men who wrote, but it was the Spirit of God who was driving them to write so that what they actually wrote down were the very words of God. It's the Word of God. Acts chapter 1, verse 16. In those days, Peter stood up among believers, a group numbering 120, and said, Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled. Listen to this. Which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David. He's talking about the Psalms. He's referencing particularly Psalm 69 and 109. But do you understand how he described the Psalms? That these are the, the words which who spoke? Which the Holy Spirit spoke through whom? Through David. David was the vessel. The words belonged to God. You understand that's the first issue that matters when it comes to understanding the nature of the Bible. These are God's words. They're not men's words. And because they are the words of God... They have absolute authority. They have absolute authority. They are unchallengeable because God has spoken. And, and when He speaks, the conversation is over. When He speaks, there is no one who can rise up and say, well, I don't agree with that. I overrule you. That's the height of blasphemy. And certainly no other person can add to what He said. Think about the blasphemy of that. To say, God, I understand that this is what You've said, but it's incomplete. I need to add to it. The psalmist declares to us when we look at this, we're reading the Lord's statutes, the Lord's words, the Lord's commandments. The Bible is the very word of God. What else is it? He tells us in the psalm that it's the means of salvation. Look at verse 50. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. Verse 93. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. It is by the Word of God that you give me life. It is through the Word of God that I receive life, he says. Verse 156. Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. For the psalmist at the heart of all this, this was not just about the fact that it was God's words, but it was words that became for him a means of salvation. It was through the words that life came to him. Spiritual life came to him. He, had, he looked at the words of God and he understood that they had the power to captivate and to transform the human heart. He had experienced that. They were words of life. On June 27, 1819, Adoniram Judson, great missionary in the history of the church, baptized his very first convert in Burma. His wife, Anne Hasseltine, described how that convert, a man by the name of Mount Now, had responded to the Scriptures. And she writes this, which is a quote of that convert. He said, A few days ago, I was reading with him Christ's Sermon on the Mount. He was deeply impressed and unusually solemn. And listen to what he said. These words, they take hold of my liver and they make me tremble a native of Burma who had never heard the words of God before, when he opened the book, he understood that these words were not just words on a page, but they were the words of God that had power to transform. They took hold of his liver, he said, and made him tremble. 
2,000 years, the Word of God has been doing that to people of every tribe, of every nation, of every language, in every place. One single verse, one single verse, Romans 13, 13, transformed the heart of a man by the name of Augustine. He became a great father of the Christian church. Martin Luther, who we talk about in the Reformation, was a miserable monk until he began to preach through Romans, and he came to Romans 1.17. And he saw for the first time that the just shall live by faith. He said this, Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by, by which, through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. He says this, Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through the open doors into paradise. One verse of the Word of God transformed the man's heart. Jonathan Edwards, in reading 1 Timothy 1.17, says this, The first instance that I remember of that sort of inward sweet delight in God and divine things that I have lived much in since was on reading the words of 1 Timothy 1.17. As I read the words, there came into my soul a sense of the divine glory. A new sense, quite different from anything I had ever experienced before. Never any words of Scripture seemed so to me as sweet as those words did. A simple verse, one verse, captured and captivated the man's heart. From century to century, from Burma to Germany to England to Scotland to America, the Word of God has been drawing people to Christ, exposing their sin and transforming their hearts. Because it's a means of salvation. J.C. Ryle, much later in the history of the church, wrote this. The Bible applied to the heart by the Holy Spirit is the grand instrument by which souls are first converted to God. That mighty change is generally begun by some text or doctrine of the Word brought home to a man's conscience. In this way, the Bible has worked moral miracles by the thousands. It has made drunkards become sober. Immoral people become pure. Thieves become honest and violent-tempered people become meek. It has wholly altered the course of men's lives. It has caused their old things to pass away and made all their ways new. When you open up the Bible, you are seeing the very words of God and you are seeing words that hold the power to transform the human heart and bring life and salvation where there was death and sin. In the Word of God, the psalmist would tell us, it's absolutely sufficient for such things. It needs no human help. It doesn't need a man to add to it. It doesn't need some group of signs and wonders attached to it to save the soul. It's the Spirit of God that empowers the Word of God, which explodes in the human heart and transforms us. When we look to the Word of God, we find everything we need to know about God. We find out that He's the one who created us and made us in His image. When we look to the Word of God, we find out that, he, that, that we are rebels by nature and choice and that we are condemned by our Creator because we've sinned and rebelled against Him. We see all of that right here in the Word of God. But we also see when we look at it, the Gospel, don't we? We open up this book and we begin to read and we realize that the one before, we, before whom we stand condemned is a God who also loves us. And we find out that He's also provided a way for us to be saved. And that that way for us to be saved is He's given His very own Son to die in our place. 
who was born, who lived, who died, was buried and raised on the third day from the grave. And that if we simply place our trust and faith in Him, that through Him we'll be saved from our sin and have eternal life. All of that information we find in the Word of God, it teaches us these things and draws us to Christ that we might be saved. It's a means of salvation. It's also the truth. It's also the truth. Verse 142, your, righteous, your righteousness is righteous forever, and your law is true. The sum of your words, verse 160, is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. And there are others, but your law is truth. The sum of your words is truth. What are the implications of that? When we look to the words of God, when we open up our Bibles, everything we find in there is absolute truth. It's true. That is to say, when you read it, you don't have to wonder, I wonder if that's right or not. I wonder if they got that part right. Is that for real? The psalmist declares that all of God's words are true. And not only are they true, uh, but they are the, the, the measuring stick by which we define all other truth. They are truths from the very words, of words uh, uh, from the very mouth of God, and they are the words of truth that define all other truths. In other words, we don't measure the word of God or the truth of it by other standards of truth. We measure every other standard by God's word. Do you see that? It is the measuring tape. It's not the lumber. The Bible doesn't conform to some outside measure of truth. The Bible defines truthfulness. It is truth. The Bible is not measured by human reason to decide if we think it's true or not. The Bible isn't put up against scientific discovery, where we compare as though scientific discovery is the deciding factor on whether or not the Bible is true. The Bible isn't measured by somebody's personal opinion. It isn't isn't measured by medical science. The the Word of God is the measuring stick against all of those groups of fields of thought. And the psalmist would declare to us that anything that contradicts the Word of God is by virtue of that false, because it is the truth. In saying this, the psalmist declares God's God's word, the Bible that we have, it's not just one truth among many. It is the truth. It is the truth. It is the only truth. And it's true forever. That's the next piece. It tells us that it's unchanging and eternal. Verse 89, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Firmly fixed. Verse 144, your testimonies are righteous forever. Verse 160, every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Forever, forever, firmly fixed in the heavens. It's the psalmist's way of saying that the Scriptures are eternally and unalterably perfect and that it's truth that endures and it stands from every generation to the next generation to the next generation. From the beginning to the end of human history, it is truth. It never goes out of style. It never, like your iPhone, needs to be updated. It never like your computer, you never open up the Word of God like you push the power button on your computer and you go to do something, you've got three seconds to do it, and that thing comes up and says, ooh, updating. And you wait for 20 minutes for the stupid thing to get its stuff right so you can do your work. The Word of God never needs updating. It never needs alteration. It never needs to be changed. It is unchanging and it's eternal. It's not a passing standard that was true back in the day, but now it's a little bit outdated and dusty and old, and it needs to be sort of brushed up a bit for a modern culture. No. The psalmist says it's 
righteous forever. It endures forever. It's firmly fixed in the heavens. It couldn't be altered, even if we tried. You and I live in a generation that has completely and utterly, if there's anything that has marked this generation, it has been an outright rejection of the idea of objective truth. As a culture, we've decided that there is no such thing as objective truth. That there is no such thing as truth that endures. Some, some standard that is set that has always been and will always be true by which we can measure ourselves. We live in a day where the prevailing notion is that of cultural relativism and also individual relativism. The idea that there is no objective truth, that there, the only truths that exist are relative truths. That is to say that they're relative to the person. What's true for you is true for you, but what's true for these guys over here is true for them. And what's true for me is true for me, but we don't look at each other's truth and compare. It, that's irrelevant. And there is no standard by which we can all go and measure ourselves to find truth. And anyone, we're told, who claims to have some objective measure of truth is arrogant is arrogant and bigoted and judgmental. Because everyone today knows that there is no such standard of objective truth. Everything is relative. From person to person, from culture to culture. If there's anything that's held up as a measuring rod in our culture, it's the idea of science. It's often held up as a measuring rod. Somebody comes up with an hypothesis and somebody says, well, there was a study, a scientific study, and the scientific study proved it. And so everybody goes, oh, oh it must be true then. Right? Isn't that how it works? That's true on a, a number of issues that sort of cross the pages of the newspapers these days. Global warming, uh, the idea of where did we all come from, creation, the age of the earth, gender confusion, how we should approach counseling. All of those things are in our culture we're told there is no measure of standard of truth, that all of those things, the only measure of truth is what science has to say about them. What are we to tell people in counseling? Well, let's look to the scientists and the psychotherapists. They're the ones who will do their psychology testing. That's scientific, you know. And they'll tell us what we're to say to counseling people to help them. Now, how do you know about gender? Well, let's look to science and let's see what the scientists tell us. So-and-so's done a gender study, and here's what they found. Oh, well, it must be true then, because science has said it. You know what the problem with that is? Science changes all the time. I did a debate a number of years ago at the College of Charleston with an atheist math professor down there. And um, it was more of a, a forum than a debate. Uh, but what was fascinating is the issue of creation came up. And the crea- idea of divine creation versus evolution. And um, I knew that was going to be a sticky point in the conversation. And after the main point of the debate, people could ask questions, and a notorious atheist math professor down there stood up, and I knew he was going to ask me a question. There was nobody else that he was going after other than the conservative evangelical, the only one on the stage. And of course, he comes at it, you know, do, you know this idea that the Bible is true. And, um, and somehow in the mix of that, he threw me a softball because he brought up the issue of, of evolution and creation and science. And it was a wonderful opportunity because I was able to say to him, you know what? I tell you what, you stand on science and I'll stand on the unchanging word of God. Because I'm claiming that the word of God never changes. The standard that I'm standing on has never changed and it will never change. The standard you're standing on is quicksand. It redefines itself every single day. You, you get one area of life this is, do you even know what's healthy to eat anymore? How could you possibly know? What they told us 10 years ago we were supposed to avoid, now they tell us it's fine. 
They used to tell us you got to avoid things with cholesterol and all this kind of stuff because it'll give you a heart attack. And I just read a study this week that said, you know what? Cholesterol has very little, if anything, to do with whether or not you have a heart attack. Like, what? I've missed it for 10 years. All the cholesterol I could have ate. You know, they tell you, eat these things, and this is what's going to make you healthy. And then 10 years later, they go, oh, no, you know what? That thing actually caused cancer. Sorry. That's science for you. Listen, I'm not, I'm not saying science is irrelevant. I, I, I don't want to make light of it in that way. You understand? There's value in science because what happens in scientific discovery is through scientific discovery, we discover the things God has done, which makes it remarkable. But science overflows its boundaries and takes on authority that it doesn't belong to it. The psalmist says, you know what? That's not a good standard. It's quicksand because it changes all the time. The Word of God, it endures forever. Get this. The Word of God, he says, is invaluable. Invaluable. This is not something that the psalmist could take or leave. It was clearly the Word of God was his most prized possession. Listen to this. Verse 72. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Verse 127, therefore I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. What is the psalmist saying? I mean, what were the most precious, most valuable things in his day? Gold and silver, right? That was the currency of his day. And he's saying, you know what? You could pile upon pile upon pile gold and silver into my account. And I find that your word is more precious. It's more valuable to me than all the money you could pile in a pile. That's his way of saying that the words of God are absolutely invaluable. They're invaluable. There's nothing that has value to the extent of the words of God. The psalmist places the value of God's word over everything. There's nothing, there's nothing better. There's nothing more valuable, nothing more important. Let me show you a picture of a Bible. Maybe. Can I show a picture of a Bible? I don't see anybody to show a picture of a Bible. So maybe I'm not going to show a picture of a Bible. Uh, What I had previously had for you uh, before uh, we abandoned ship was (laughs) a picture of a Bible uh, that you can go and look for on your own uh, online somewhere. Uh, It's a picture of a martyr's Bible. You ever heard of a martyr's Bible? There are only a few that exist. In the 1600s, around the time of the Reformation, oh, Juliana comes to the rescue. Um, the 1600s, around the time, uh, uh, around that time, uh, Queen Mary, Bloody Mary, came to rule in England. She's a, a devout Roman Catholic, and she was intent on squashing this Protestant rebellion. And so she brutally terrorized Protestants in England, had her soldiers uh, murder them, kill them, spill their blood. And one of the the things that they liked to do in that time when they would kill a Protestant and spill their blood, his or her blood, they would take their Bibles and dip them in the blood of the martyr. And they did that as a visible message to anybody else who would dare to follow in their footsteps, you see? There are a few, just a few of those Bibles that are still around, still preserved. It's a picture of one of them. And if you look closely, you can see up in the top right-hand corner and the top left-hand corner a stain that kind of cuts the, the edge there in a triangle. That's what that is. That's the, the dried blood of a martyr who owned that Bible at some point in their life. 
John MacArthur has a friend who owns one of these martyrs' Bibles, and he got to hold it and look at it. And here's what he said. He said, I, I examined that Bible carefully page by page. He said, I could see where it was well-worn from being studied. There were water stains as if from tears. And places where a thumb had frayed favorite pages. This was someone's most valuable possession. And his or her blood is there to prove it. My friends, when we pick up the Word of God, we're holding the most valuable possession in the world. There are many, many who have gone before us who have given their very lives and spilled their blood to have it and to own it. And that picture of that Bible is a living testimony to us all today. And frankly, I don't know how that lands on you, but it lands on me as a stunning sort of a rebuke on the fact that I have a shelf full of Bibles. And I don't value it as I ought to. But the psalmist says the Word of God is invaluable. It's more valuable than anything. It's worth dying for. Finally, he says this, it's satisfying. It's satisfying. Verse 103, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. Trouble, verse 143, and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. The joy of my heart. My delight. For the psalmist, reading the Word of God, meditating on the Word of God, studying the Word of God was no drudgery. In fact, it was the source of his greatest satisfaction. The Word was fulfilling to him in a way that nothing else was in his life. Think of all the things that the world sort of dangles before us. and says, if you just get this, you'll be satisfied. The things, right? If you just have this home, if you just have this car, if you just get this job, you'll, you'll be, it'll satisfy you. And we've said this many times, but all of advertising is built around this idea, right? To make us dissatisfied with what we have and then dangle before us something that we need to acquire in order to now be satisfied. Your old car is junky. Look at this beautiful one. This will make you happy. Your old house is too small. You need this home and this place, and you'll be satisfied. Your clothes, look at yourself, man. Get it together. You don't know how to dress. If you wore these clothes, you'd, everybody would look at you, and you'd be the man. The problem is, you and I know that the promise is never actually realized. We get the things, and we're still not satisfied, right? And then... Something else is being dangled before us. But the psalmist says, Your word is sweeter than honey. Your, your word is sweeter than, just to translate this so you make sense, you can just erase honey for a second and insert your favorite sweet thing. Okay? I had a jelly donut for breakfast from Krispy Kreme, and that thing was great. Your word is sweeter than that jelly donut from Krispy Kreme. You add in your favorite thing. It's more satisfying than the things that spring satisfaction to our bodies, is what he's saying. Your word is a joy to my heart. It's my delight. He's saying there's nothing. There's nothing that satisfies my soul like this word. That is what it is. 
that's what it is. Well, we, we didn't get very far, did we? Just the nature. Maybe that's far enough. Do you understand that this is what you hold when you hold the Bible? If that is what the Scriptures are, if they are the very words of God, if they are the means of our salvation, if it is truth unmixed with error, if it is unchanging and eternal truth that we can anchor our lives to and find stability in a world that is blowing with winds of thoughts and doctrines all around us, if it is the most valuable possession in the world, if it is the thing that brings ultimate satisfaction to our souls, how should we regard it? What should we do with it? Do we do this? Sit it somewhere and let it collect dust? Do we pull it out real quickly when we've got 30 seconds between running from here to there and go, okay, two verses. Whew, got that. Read my Bible today. What do we do with it? If you were to read this psalm, you would see what the psalmist says. He says we're to do things like this. Store up your word in our heart. He says we're to do things like meditate on His Word. He says we're to do things like refuse to forget His Word. He says that we're to do things like declare His Word. That is, tell other people about it. That we're to trust in it. We're to trust in His Word. I wonder if that's the approach that you and I are taking to His Word these days. Are we storing up His Word in our heart? Are we ignoring the greatest treasure we've ever had? Are we pausing from the busy craziness of our lives to stop and not just quickly scan the words, but to meditate on them? Are we making a commitment to put these words inside of our brains so that we will not forget them? Are we declaring? Are we trusting? I'm going to close with verse 37. Because I believe this needs to be our prayer as we think through this and think how it applies to our lives and what we need to do today and this week in response to what the Word of God is. Listen to verse 37. This is the prayer I challenge you to pray this week. The psalmist says to God, Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. You know what? That puts it in practical terms that even a dummy like me can understand. When I think about my own life and in any given week, how many worthless things my eyes look at. How many worthless things my mind thinks about. How many worthless things occupy my attention and my time in the hustle and bustle of my day. And how little time the most valuable treasure in the universe gets in front of my eyes. I think we all need to pray that, don't we? This week, God, turn our eyes away from the worthless junk that captivates our attention. Help us to push the power button and turn that thing off. And the television button off and shut down the computer. And turn our eyes away from the worthless stuff that crowds our life out so that we can... Put our eyes on things that give us life. Let's pray together. Oh God, we adore you. We thank you that you have not left us and made us and sent us out to live our lives without any information on how to do it. But indeed you, the God who made us, has spoken to us.
You've spoken to us in Your Word, and You've made it absolutely accessible to us. You've not hidden it that we have to go find it. You haven't made it impossible to understand so that we require someone else to interpret it. You haven't given it to us in pieces and parts incomplete that has to be added to and taken away from by others. But You have given to us the greatest treasure of the universe. Your very words. Words that spring forth in our hearts and bring us to Christ, Your Son. Words that expose our sin and rebellion and show us how we can be saved by faith in Your Son, Jesus. You've given us Your eternal, unchanging truth that provides for us an anchor for our souls. But while the world shifts and moves and changes all around us, You've given, a place, given us a word that holds us steady and keeps us anchored and buoyed through every storm of life. You've given us a word that is sweet, that satisfies us to our very core. We pray together this morning, God, that you would, that you would forgive us for our neglect of your word. Convict us as we think of men like, like Wycliffe. As we think of men like Tyndale who were strangled and burned and buried. As we think about the, the Marian martyrs who were killed and had their Bibles dipped in their own blood. Forgive us, Lord, for our utter neglect of Your Word. It costs us nothing to have it. It costs us nothing to open it. It costs us nothing to read it. And yet we so often neglect it. And our souls pay the price. And our lives pay the price. We pray, O oh God, that you would teach us to treasure your word. This week, turn our eyes away from the worthless junk that captivates our attention. And captify us, captivate us, satisfy us with your all-sufficient word, we pray.